Hey everyone, it's Jesse with a brief note to introduce and uh, sort of frame this episode. Uh, we recorded it in the middle of May around then, and it was originally set to be published on uh, June 1st, but uh, as June 1st arrived, uh, it didn't feel right to us to publish it. Um, we just couldn't go on as if everything was normal in the world right now. Um, and frankly, at the time, we wanted to shut up and make room for other voices in the moment. Uh, so we held on to this episode until now, uh, as we continue to process and react to the murder of George Floyd and the uprising uh, that's taking place across the U.S. Uh, and even the world, and uh, you know, which is still happening now. And we know that you two are still likely processing and reacting to the current movement that is unfolding. So we just want to make this note before this episode. It's likely that we will continue a somewhat irregular schedule for episodes in the future, given the movement for Black Lives, as well as the pandemic, as JP and I both focus our attention on things that um, we find more important right now. Uh, so we hope you are taking care of yourselves and enjoy this episode. Thanks. Welcome back to Swift Unwrapped. Uh, here we are uh, after a few months hiatus um, for hopefully obvious reasons. Um, the main one being the coronavirus COVID-19 situation, um, but also uh, some good news from JP. Yeah, we um, incremented our family count <laughs> and uh, now we have we have two little kids running around. Um, one's not running so much as uh, crying and doing baby things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kept me busy. And of course, with uh, COVID-19 lockdown, we've, uh, we've all had to readjust. We hope uh, you listening at home or wherever you happen to be uh, are doing well, you're safe. Um, and hopefully this show can be a bit of a break from the um, absolute insanity that is going on out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so it was good uh, for us to take a little bit of a break, catch up on life things, and um, yeah, I think yeah now we're ready to uh, resume episodes. There's been a lot going on, um, and I think uh, the first actual actually the first thing that we need to discuss is how to pronounce tuple. How do you say tuple, JP? Yeah, I've, I've said tuple. Um, okay, so we're... Actually, I, I think my, my pronunciation has changed over the years. I think I used to say tuple. Yeah. Um, not not sure. So then you learn the correct way to say it. Yeah, it might, might be that. Yeah. Um, it's like there aren't too many other English language, language words that that like have that same pattern. If T-U-P, mm. like... Yeah. You, you have like quintuples. Yeah. Which you wouldn't say quintuples, <laughs> would you? I don't know. You could, maybe you could say that. Um, I'm not. I'm not the person to ask for um, pronunciation guides. So maybe <laughs> you can ask your your colleagues at Duolingo for right. Uh, you know what's what's the etymology? But it's not the source of the word. It's the source of the pronunciation. Mm -hmm. Is there a word for that? 
Uh, I am not sure, actually. I'm so out of my depth right now. Let's yeah. get back to, <laughs> to to the main topic where I'm also out of my depth, but <laughs> right. at least try. Yeah. Uh, tuples have been a hot topic for a while, um, aside from the pronunciation. Do um, you want to start off with overview? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and again, this is where I, I try. Um, so tuples have been around in the Swift language since the first previews of Swift. And right away, they were seen as sort of a very lightweight way to add um, structural type information without necessarily going ahead and creating a class, which even though they're not terribly heavyweight in, in Swift, either classes or structs, um, as opposed to Objective-C, where you go and create a class and you've got all of a sudden this global hook into the runtime that you're doing on on process startup and things like that. They're a lot more lightweight, but you still have to go somewhere and sort of define it. Whereas a tuple, you can just inline it and say you want to print something, say you you want to pass two things to some other thing. Well, you don't need to go and create a whole class if you're just going to create it just one time or just twice or something like that. So Right. Is this the same concept as like anonymous structs? Yeah. Are these well, like basically the same thing or is that slightly different? Yeah, it is. And and so that's where we get to um, official nomenclature where a tuple is called is is what's referred to as a non-nominal type. Um, the type has no name. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's just a tuple, even though um, it carries different type information. You don't actually name a tuple. You can create like a type alias, um, but under, that's really just a shortcut. Um, as opposed to nominal types, things like enums, structs, classes, and so in Swift's history. Nominal types, like the ones that I just listed, classes, enums, um, structs, have had certain privileges that um, non-nominal types have not. And so going to what you just mentioned, the anonymous structs, uh, yeah, Tuple mm-hmm. is an anonymous struct in the sense that it has no name. Um, and that's where the nomenclature nominal and non-nominal come in. Um, sort of similar, similar equivalent to um, closures and functions, uh, except closures you you can name, right? But but that's that's sort of the the parallel that's happening there. So that's meant that nominal types have had certain privileges that tuples haven't in their lifetime. Things like uh, the ability to conform to protocols being the main one, mm-hmm. and this brings us to. Um, a long-standing limitation of the Swift language, which is, say you have an array of tuples. Um, well, you can't necessarily pass that array to f- a, some generic code that expects to operate on equatable um, or hashable, which array does um, if its contents are, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So this has been problematic for, for a while um, since Swift was in preview, right? So for six years at this point. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that the, the reason why um, people have been hesitant to uh, specifically have conformance of tuples for hashable, equatable, comparable, other protocols like that is that no one ever really came up with a really elegant design for how to do that. There was always, well, there wasn't always... Once we had conditional conformances where if the element of an array is 
equatable than the arrays equatable then you know these these sort of second order conformances um then we had a mechanism for tuples to then be allowed to conform to protocols but right which the, made it even more awkward that they didn't certainly yeah certainly but the the solution still wasn't necessarily elegant because um as this proposal highlights um even if you special case a handful of protocols like equatable comparable hashable this is proposal 283 that that we're talking about um how do you extend that to all of the other protocols? Uh, and this proposal sort of skips over that or, or punts on that for the time being. Um, but that's sort of been, in my opinion, what's what's held it back is the lack of an elegant design for how these conformances would work. And really, it just seems like here we are, Swift 5.x, like 3 or 4, maybe even Swift 6 by the time this actually makes it into an official release. Mm-hmm. Um where it just seems like uh, this had dragged on for long enough and we just bit the bullet and said, well, this has been a longstanding limitation for so long, even if we haven't been able to come up with an elegant design so far, let's just bite the bullet and um, special case these important protocols um, and and go from there. Um, I should also mention that um, there have been attempts and and some somewhat successful hacks in the meantime where overloads of the equal equal operator um, were added for tuples up to arity of six i think yeah it was six that was a proposal sc15 very early proposal yeah Yeah. so i think that um i'm actually not 100 percent sure but i would say that was way before conditional conformances Oh, yes, significantly. Yeah, and so, yeah, that was the compromise. Um, Were tuples, I think that was just equatable and comparable um, up to arity of 6 in SE15. I don't think it did anything with Hashable. No, and in fact, you can't really do it with Hashable because equatable and comparable um, expose... Operators. uh, Operators. Right, yeah. And so the um, tuples still don't conform to equatable and comparable. They just um, happen to overload the same operators. Right, right. So Hashable doesn't have an operator like that. It, it has a member function um, on the Hashable type. Right. And so you can't extend a tuple. That's another limitation of, of tuples, by the way. You can't conform to protocols, and you also can't extend them. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I think at the time of SD15. I don't remember really considering this that much, but it is definitely a, a hack to to just overload the, the operators. Yeah, I, I strongly agree and that um shouldn't detract from you know it was the right thing to do at the time probably. Um right. in retrospect you might look at okay here we are now in Swift 5.3 or or 5.4 or 6.0 depending on when this when this lands and Swift's future release strategy. But um, if if you had known that in 2020, uh, Tuple still couldn't conform to these protocols, would we have taken that um, temporary step of adding um, operator overloads right. for equal equals or greater than, et cetera? Um, I'm not sure that that would have still been the right call. But at the time, 
the idea was more like, this is a quick win that we can do, and it does unlock functionality that is very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are hopeful to find an elegant solution to non-nominal types conformity protocols. Um, so it was just sort of punted, and I, I can't fault anyone who was involved at the time for, for making that decision. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and another interesting thing in the uh, forum discussion was that uh, C++ tuples are equatable and comparable, but interestingly, they're not hashable, which apparently is a pain point uh, in that community when you're working with tuples. Yeah, I'd say another protocol that's along those lines is codable. Mm, yeah. And unfortunately, um, you know, you do have the complication of, of JSON being probably the predominant serialization type uh, yeah. that doesn't have a good story for for tuples either doesn't have a first class representation for it right um you know you could serialize it to an array but that's not quite right either especially when you have multiple disjoint types in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's uh an interesting point as well uh i wonder if in the future we'll see automatic conformance to codable in a tuple if all of the elements are codable yeah, so you do have that listed in the proposal in terms of future directions. Uh, with this change, other conformances such as codable might make sense for tuples as well. Quoting from the proposal here. I see. Um, also on this note, uh, in the uh, forum discussion, uh, Rust provides this equatable, comparable, and hashable for tuples, but it has the limitation of doing that to an ARD of 12. I don't know the story behind that, but uh, someone commented on the the forum thread um, with that. So that's interesting, just to see how other languages are doing this. And 12 seems reasonable. Yeah, well, in what conditions or what scenarios do you think that um, having a non-nominal type, right, this thing that holds rich type information yeah. uh, that has 12 members right. is preferable um, oh, I definitely preferable <laughs> yeah. to having a, a named struct. Yes, I definitely don't think that is preferable. Uh, yeah. But I, I was more commenting on like, okay, the limit of twelve seems like a reasonable limit. Like that's more than you should ever need, uh, because yeah. at that point you should be constructing a, a a better type than just like throwing a twelve tuple around. Yeah, so I think different people will probably have a different threshold mm-hmm. um, for where that uh, where that trade-off lies, right? Where you um, commit and actually create a named type for this uh, bag of bits that you're lugging around. Yeah. Um, my, my threshold is much lower than 12, it's even much lower than six. I think when we start approaching yeah. four or five um, items in a in a tuple is when I'd say yes, yeah, slap a name on that bad boy. Exactly. Um, in fact, I rarely use tuples. Um, I think they they are good for like something that's very isolated or like quick and dirty implementations or for testing or something. But almost always, in my experience, um, they become too unwieldy, even if there's only three elements. Um, and I almost always go to revert to using a a struct instead. Um, I actually recently on a project, there was an area in 
the code base where um, it was pretty isolated. It was using a three tuple and then it had to be extended to a five tuple. And I just threw all that away and turned it into a struct instead because it's just way easier to deal with. I mean, I think you get to a point where uh, any kind of public API that's like providing tuples as like return types or input types to functions, um, I think it's, in my opinion, just too hard to use. Um, and then you have all the limitations as well. You can't extend it, et cetera. So, yeah. So, I mean, the fact that it's unnamed, which is its whole purpose, right? right yeah. Um, has inherent drawbacks. The fact that it's unnamed means that it's uh, unwieldy to refer to in conversation. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. So, um, you know, when you say, uh, for example, pass around a result type or pass a pair, right, which isn't in the standard library, but it's common. A lot of um, a lot of either micro frameworks or um, apps have have the concept of a pair, um, not the fruit, the you know, couple, um, or, or things like that. Or know. both. Or both, yeah. <laughs> uh, or pass an int, right? Um, when you're when you're referring to a named type, you, you have that name to refer it by, right? That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, the other aspect, which, you know, if you are taking advantage of the fact that a tuple is unnamed, then you're... Um, reducing your opportunities to also document that. Um, and part of this actually comes down to syntax and uh, tooling, I suppose. But um, even if you had the ability, for example, to have doc strings for the members of a tuple, mm -hmm. that sort of seems to be, um, to, to be completely asymmetric, where you're saying this tuple isn't important enough to have a name, but it's important enough that I'll go and write doc strings for <laughs> right. its members, right? Right. Right. Um, so in that sense, like the the inability to refer to it in any meaningful way in documentation, and the inability to like properly document it, um, or to generate API docs for it, etc., um, means that it, it is not suited for um, public API use. Uh, at best, it is helpful when. Um, you want to use uh, a very lightweight structure just for for like a, a subset of an algorithm mm -hmm. um, where you need to hold two things around, right? Or three things around together. But when you start passing them um, across function boundaries and across type back boundaries, even file boundaries, then mm -hmm. um, it it just loses its um, its power altogether. Yeah, exactly. And the so the other thing about the code snippet I was referring to earlier that I converted to a struct, the subsequent code needed to access the individual members of that tuple for different things um, to construct some other objects. And so accessing those with the dot zero, dot one, dot two, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call that, um, operators or, you know, to access the individual members of a tuple, you know, that just gets confusing because they're not named. Um, you can go add labels and then they have names, but then it's like, well, why don't you just make a struct instead? So I think especially when you have to access individual members for subsequent work, you know, for different things, the larger the tuple, the more 
difficult it is to deal with. Yeah, and you know, we should acknowledge that um, uh, you can name the members of a tuple, right? So you don't have to refer to them as dot zero, dot one, dot two, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you create it, if you give, if you label those members, then you can refer to it by those member member names, um, as opposed to the, you know, automatically synthesized uh, identifiers zero, one, two, three, etc. Right, but even if you give labels, you can still use those other identifiers, right? Like it's not mandatory. I think you can use both. I'm not convinced. Um, okay, I haven't tried it me- for a while. Yeah, let me pull up a playground real quick and and see if we can let a equals tuple of zero one, and then you can do a dot zero. Um, but if you call it, um, if you label them x and y, let's see. Yeah, you're right. That does work. Um, you no longer have zero and one in autocomplete, but the code compiles fine. That's interesting. Interesting, huh? Yeah, because you you actually do have it in autocomplete um, when your tuple members are not labeled. Right. Fascinating. Um, But they still type check and resolve um, even after you name your elements. Yeah, I wonder if that's a feature or a bug. Uh, Somewhere in between. (laughs) Right. Another thing that is important to acknowledge is that in Swift, you can have very locally scoped nominal types. So you can create a struct uh, in that small subset of your algorithm nested within a uh, switch block within a um, conditional branch of a function in a class in another class. You know, you can have right. this arbi- almost arbitrary level of nesting and you can have this nearly anonymous named struct or named class so that you yeah you really rarely have um like there's rarely opportunities where a tuple gives you new powers that uh a very strategically placed struct wouldn't give you exactly and then uh, i would argue that that's a more forward-thinking way to write it because if that needs to grow, it's, in my opinion, much easier to add a member to a struct um, than to uh, add a member to a tuple, uh, which was totally. which was the problem I ran into um, that I was describing uh, uh, earlier. Um, you know, when you go from like three members to five, then it's just like the refactoring that you have to do there is just very painful. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And the other aspect there is um, structs are more powerful than tuples. Even if you don't conform them to protocols, even if you don't um, extend them by adding new functionality, imagine that um, local struct concept from earlier. Um, It's helpful to create those even when your struct has zero elements. You can't have a tuple of zero elements. Right. A tuple has to have one or more elements. Whereas a struct that um, has no members is helpful, for example, when you need to provide a unique um, hashable um, identifier. You create an instance of a hashable empty struct and every other instance of that struct will match, but no other type 
uh, even types that are named exactly the same can ever meet that. So if mm -hmm. ever you need sort of a globally unique token for something, using a struct is so, and, and, and like an empty hashable struct mm -hmm. is so much better than coming up with a unique string identifier or a UUID because you actually have the type safety there. Mm -hmm. There is no way that anywhere else could potentially create something with the same identifier. Ah, that's interesting. That's a good idea. So like when you have um, uh, dispatch once calls right. that need right. to be um, unique across even multiple invocations of the same function, mm -hmm. um, creating even just a locally scoped empty struct that conforms to Hashable is a great way to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's fresh in my mind because I'm um, watching, I've been watching a few of the point free episodes I see. Uh, over quarantine. Yeah. And um, one, one of their more recent episodes has a way to um, initiate what they call an effect mm -hmm. in the architecture, which is a way to perform side effects. It's, Anytime you need to go outside the world of these pure functions, mm -hmm. you can model it as an effect, but sometimes it's helpful to cancel previous effects. So for example, an API request as you're like typing quickly in a text field or something. Mm -hmm. And to have a uniquely identifiable token to make sure that you cancel cancel any other similar request, they they create these um, locally scoped structs, which um, is very elegant. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's a cool trick. Um, the other question I have, though, is are there any performance concerns with not using a tuple and using a struct instead? My hunch, is, says, my hunch says no, there's not really a significant cost there, but maybe uh, in memory or... I'm not completely sure that there's any area where there'd be measurable performance impact using one over the other. But I can tell you that there's uh, a small amount of overhead to using a struct. Like for example, um, you have the name that is going in there right. that adds to uh, the binary size because that has to be encoded. Um, you also have uh, the debug info for that struct that gets generated, which I don't think that happens for tuples. Okay. Um, but again, we're talking e extremely insignificant, like nearly insignificant um, uh, increases to code size, more so than runtime performance or memory. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if tuples can be bit packed in the same way as structs can. Interesting. So say you have Boolean int Boolean as your fields. Uh, in a struct, mm -hmm. the compiler can rearrange those so that the booleans are together in memory and then the, the end comes after so that you're reusing that space. I don't know if tuples have the same optimization. I would guess not because the order is important for tuples, right? Especially for this proposal, right? If you're implementing comparable. The order is also important in structs. Okay. And that is that bit packing is very much an optimization that sort of gets undone if it needs to be, you know, there's like, there's not quite indirection, but the compiler is smart enough to um, sort of like update all of the references to say like the third member to actually point to the second one in memory and things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for a tuple, if you know, it's plausible that you could do the compiler could do the same thing. I see. Uh, I remember vaguely, 
um, in earlier versions of Swift, uh, there's something about tuples actually being a little bit expensive in the compiler itself. Um, I want to say something about, I don't know, the reabstraction cost or something like that. This was a while back and it may have been resolved and I can't remember, maybe it had to do with ABI stability. Maybe it was in one of those uh, manifestos or docs. Do you recall any of that? I don't, sorry. And nothing comes to mind. Okay. Uh, I think the last thing that I want to uh, discuss about this proposal is um, code size. So, um, and the what seems like the inability to opt in to this behavior. So, um, you know, before with uh, proposals, um, I guess it was with structs and uh, maybe other types. Uh, if every member um, uh, of the struct is equatable, comparable, hashable, you can just declare that conformance and everything is automatically synthesized, right? So we've had that behavior for a little while now, um, but it's opt-in. So if you don't declare your struct as equatable, then you, you don't get that behavior, that code is not generated. But it seems like here, if every member of your tuple is equatable, comparable, and or hashable, then you automatically get opted in to this behavior. That's how I read this proposal. Yeah, that's possible. Um, but I don't think that in practice you'd ever actually see an impact there. Okay. Just because you would have to make such heavy use of tuples everywhere, and especially tuples with different types. Right, right. Because it's my understanding that... Um, uh, that a tuple of, say, int and double. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so a tuple of two members of int and double um, use it 100 different places in your app that those wouldn't need to have 100 different implementations of hashable, of equatable, of comparable. Sure, sure. And in fact, you know, I'm not sure how much of this is actually done at compile time versus runtime, um, but the proposal does state that um, tuples that uh, have different labels don't impact their equality or hash ability. Uh, so, for example, if you have named labels and you compare it to a tuple that has members of the same values, mm -hmm. but potentially different labels or no labels at all, that those would still match. Uh, and so that seems to indicate that tuples being anonymous doesn't really matter if you're declaring one over here and the other one over there. Mm -hmm. um, even across module boundaries, they should still right. uh, be the same. I see. Now that's interesting because that brings up another uh, point, which is what if you have a three tuple um, that models a point in 3D space? So you have X, Y, Z. And then what if you have another tuple that's modeling color values with RGB? And then now you can compare those. That's weird. That's why you name your types, kids. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yeah. Don't compare your colors to your, to your positions. <laughs> right.
Yeah, that's it's not a very catchy slogan, but you just don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, I imagine that would be rare, but it is an interesting side effect of this. Again, you know, use the tools at, at your disposal, right? And use the best tool for the job. So right. if, if it's important to define the semantics um, of a type that matches the same type signature effectively as another, uh, name it. Exactly, yeah. You know? And and really, I think we've identified or we failed to identify any um, really significant uh, area of usage for for tuples that um, would be preferable over a struct. Right. Maybe we should write a proposal to remove tuples from Swift. <laughs> hey, you can fall on that sword. <laughs> uh, speaking of runtime, though, um, to you know try to segue from something that we said a few minutes ago. Uh, What's fascinating with this uh, proposal is that um, they are... Okay, so this this actually says it. Um, earlier I mentioned I'm not sure if uh, these conformances would add much to the code size. They, they don't add much at all because... Um, effect on ABI stability section of the proposal says these conformances are being implemented within the runtime. Got it. Right, so that clarifies that. Um, but then the second part is is even more interesting, which allows us to backward deploy these conformances to Swift 5.0, 5.1, and 5.2 clients, which is great. It's it's a success story for ABI stability, showing that um, such a monumental feature can actually be backwards deployed. Right. Yeah. So now you can compare your positions and your colors all the way back to Swift 5.0. <laughs> Great advice, Jesse. From now on, I'm only using tuples for everything. Tuple-driven development, TDD? Mm. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if all of their hash values are zero anyway. Exactly. Hopefully that's the, uh, the, the hashable conformance that's synthesized. It should just return zero. Um, then it'll be fast and work every time. Uh, so let's talk about future directions. A little bit. Yeah. Um, because uh, in the future, we might want to extend uh, this special case uh, conformance to other protocols. And the proposal calls out Codable as uh, as an obvious one. Um, well, obvious. As, as a good one to consider next, I suppose. Um, although we mentioned how tricky it could be with, with JSON or with other serialization um, protocols, formats. Um, but you may also want to um, extend tuples in the future in a future Swift version, say to, you know, in the similar ways you can currently extend uh, nominal types and protocols. So those are some of the future directions that are called out. Uh, the proposal also highlights that um, because because we're adding conformances to these three protocols today, um, those entry points will need to remain uh, for for eternity, effectively, if we want to preserve ABI stability, even as um, or if we add the ability to um, to extend or conform tuples to protocols. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, there was um, some discussion in the forum thread about... Um, uh, the the technical debt that this could incur, um, and it sounds like the core team said, "Oh, we're we're okay with this. We can deal with it uh, moving forward." Um, 
I think one thing that makes more sense than codable though might be if the elements are homogeneous, then um, you could conform to the various um, collection protocols. Unless that already, can you already treat tuples like collections? You cannot. Um, that's a really interesting idea. What collection? I can't remember all of the protocols, but I would say um, all like the equivalent protocols that arrays conform to those collection protocols, I think would make sense, right? Because you have an ordered collection, essentially. Right. And actually, um, if you're interfacing with C APIs, um, I, I think this is still the case when you have a fixed, uh, fixed length array in C, um, and you're interfacing that with Swift, it actually, um, imports as a tuple, does right. it not? Uh, I believe so. That definitely was the behavior for a long time if it hasn't changed by now, but I believe that's correct. Yeah, I think that's still the case, but I'm not completely sure. Um, then, you know, that's effectively an array in one language being treated as a tuple in another. I think it only makes sense if the um, if the types are homogenous, though, right? Because otherwise, it, if you have a bunch of random uh, types in your tuple, then it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think that could be valuable, actually. Yes, but again, we're sort of stretching um, like something that should probably be a rarely used uh, feature. That's true. To you know, add more and more complexity to it. So I'm I'm not sure that's necessarily worth the trade off. Right. I guess the argument would be, well, why not just use an array? Like it's literally yeah. a two character difference to use square brackets. <laughs> yeah, and if specifically for that um, fixed length case, you might be better off having some. Um, concept of dependent types there mm -hmm. as opposed to continuously extending um, tuples with more and more power um, if you had a more generic um, pardon the pun uh, functionality of dependent types then um, you wouldn't need to extend to imbue tuples with those powers you could um, you could work more closely with uh, some of the other types in the standard library right Dependent types being sort of what I think Agda has. Um, I forget all the languages with dependent types, but they they sort of allow you to, in a type-safe way, um, declare types that are constrained over the kinds of values that they can hold. Um, so, like a, a very low, um, a, a very like a, a way to dip your toe into that water is a non-empty array, mm -hmm. um, which right, have been right. done in Swift. Mm -hmm. um, there's other types of higher kinded types like that that are possible, but this would be more about say, this is an array that can only hold between two and eight elements, for example, mm -hmm. and that would be enforced at compile time. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think there might actually be some libraries for Swift that try to add as many of these higher kind of types that are possible. Um, I think Bo might be one of those libraries. Um, Bo is a library for type functional programming in Swift. How do you spell that? B-O-W. Okay. Uh, some some interesting uh, concepts that are floating around in, in that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, take advantage of numerous data types based on algebraic properties. This sounds like um, 
like a, a startup's website yeah. pitch. <laughs> you know, it's even designed as one, but it's it's about this like yeah. super uh, mathematically heavy, uh, like nerdy concept. I love it. Nice. Cool. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes. All right. I think we will end the discussion there for today. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, you can check out the show on Twitter, Swift underscore Unwrapped. If you like the show, please do leave a review on iTunes and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.